0: Our second reading for this Lord's Day comes from the New Testament, from the book of Revelation. And we will be looking at two passages, uh, one in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, and then skipping forward to chapter 21 and reading verses 1 through 8. And again, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn there. And follow along as I read now from God's holy and inspired word. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah! And then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. And at this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then chapter 21, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts and idolaters and all liars, their place. Will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to Him and to Him alone. Amen. As we draw our study on the doctrine of the church to close today, I thought it best that we spend some time looking at the completion of God's work in regards to the church. As we read earlier, the prophet Isaiah voices the Lord's promise for his people, fully restored, clothed in the garments of salvation, bedecked as a bride on her wedding day. And the Apostle John provides an even more detailed revelation of God's plans for a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem where the marriage feast of the Lamb is celebrated. And the church is pictured as the bride whose dazzling raiment of righteousness has been granted her and God is present with his people. This is the consummation of what was first unveiled at the foot of Mount Sinai when God spoke to the Israelites and said, You shall be my people, and I shall be your God. But as we learned some weeks ago now, in that day, the people were so frightened by God's glory that they begged Moses to serve as their mediator before God, to shelter them from even God's voice falling upon their ears. And Moses fulfilled that role, serving as an intermediary between God and the people, but having a personal desire to draw even closer to God himself. You will remember that Moses asks God at one point, show me your glory but he is told that such a thing would be disastrous. God said, man shall not see me and live. Instead, God tucked Moses into the cleft of a rock, shielded his gaze, giving him only a peek of God's goodness as God passed by. But in the future consummation of Christ's kingdom, as we have just seen, everyone who has been redeemed we'll see God in the fullness of His glory face to face. This is the ultimate goal of our salvation, is it not? To have the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God in the garden where God walked among them and nothing prevented them from unencumbered fellowship and full communion with their Creator. But when sin entered the picture, the man and the woman lost that. They were expelled from the garden for their own good. And angelic guardians were placed at the entrance, shielding them from returning to partake of the tree of life. God was being gracious because God had a plan for our redemption. The way back to Eden would be prefigured in the tabernacle that God instructed Moses to create. By means of a single priest, properly prepared, bearing a blood sacrifice, the glory of God present in the Holy of Holies could be approached at an appointed time, once a year on the Day of Atonement. No wonder then, when the appointed hour for Christ's atoning work arrived, He says, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You see, the glory of the Lord is revealed in the moment of Christ's atoning death at Calvary. It is there that we see the great love that God has for his people. It is there that we see how deep and wide and broad is God's grace toward sinners. It is there that we see our debt being canceled and our release from sin being accomplished. It is there that we see Christ winning the victory on our behalf and our enemy being vanquished. It is there that our perfect high priest brings before God the only blood sacrifice sufficient to turn away God's wrath so the veil in the temple can be torn in two. It is there that the one who is the way, the truth, and the life makes us fit. To receive God's indwelling spirit. It is there that God glorifies His own name. Glory. Glory, glory. Have you ever wondered about that word? In Hebrew, the word is kavod. It means weighty. Heavy. Not in a deleterious sense, but in a positive way as as something having substance, being substantial. If someone handed you a bag of gold and it had heft to it, you would be most pleased because you would know just how valuable it was. So when kavod is used to describe an individual, it means a person of some gravitas or honor or distinction. But when it is used concerning God because it is an inherent characteristic of God's nature multiplied to the nth degree, it is translated as glory. God's glory is so magnificent, so astounding, so extraordinary, so heavy that in the new Jerusalem there is no need for any other source of light beyond his refulgent glory. And this is the moment for which God is preparing the Bride of Christ. The moment when we enter His presence and see Him face to face. This is why the Spirit is hard at work in the lives of the saints, sanctifying them. Paul writes, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image, From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What an amazing thing. The church is being prepared to be in the very presence of God in all of His glory. No longer will God declare that man shall not see me and live. But rather we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. And we shall live. Now we see in a mirror dimly. But then we shall see face to face. We're told. And this is the deep desire of our Savior. That we not only attain moral perfection upon our death. Such that we are able to be in God's presence and not perish. But that we also have a share in His glory. In Christ's high priestly prayer, in John 17, he prays to the Father. And he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Our redemption will be so complete that though the six-winged seraphim who surround the throne and cry out, Holy, 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 they will continue to hide their faces before God's glory. That we will have been so thoroughly cleansed and made new that we will see God and not perish. This is why the Westminster divines thought it right and good to ask as the first question in the catechism, what is the chief end of man? And answer it by saying man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The question recognizes the end of the story. Because the very reason for our being is this. The very reason... For our existence is this. We were made for God's glory. We were made to be in fellowship with Him, to experience communion with Him, to discover the joy that is ours when that relationship is unfettered and unsullied. But not singularly, not alone. Not simply Jesus and me, no, no. God's intention from before time began, revealed to us in the call of Abram, has always been for a great company, for a great multitude that no one could number. We have been called to be in the company of others, the company of all those whose names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. This is the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, whom Christ is perfecting. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul speaks about marriage and he uses Christ and the bride of Christ, the church, as his model for Christian marriage. And he addresses husbands at one point, admonishing them to love their wives as Christ loved the church, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He also admonishes wives to live submissively towards their husbands as the church does towards Christ. But that's the question, is it not? As the body of Christ, are we living submissively towards the one who loved us so perfectly that he gave himself for us? Are we living submissively towards Christ, who even now is making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father, wooing us towards a life that is lived with our minds set on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, with our gaze fixed on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith? Oh, that we would have the heart of the psalmist who sings, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If as members of Christ's church we are not living submissively towards him, then husbands will never love their wives the way they should. Wives will never live submissively. Children will always be rebellious. Ministers will not preach the gospel. Judges will not judge righteously. Governors will not govern honorably. There will be no glory in the church. But listen to the prayer that the Apostle offers on behalf of the Ephesian church at the end of chapter 3. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory... that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, when we imagine for a moment that what God asks of us is too great for us, when we think that there is no way that we can do that, let us acknowledge the truth of that because in and of ourselves we cannot. But let us also acknowledge the truth of this statement, that according to the riches of His glory, God has supplied us with every need. He has given us His own abiding presence and desires that we be filled with His fullness. Let us think not for a minute that God is unaware of the cares and concerns of His children or that He is slow to come to their aid. Let us not think that when the church is faced with trial or temptation that God is not already answering our prayers even before we ask. Let us not believe that whatever the world throws at us, that the armor God supplies is insufficient for keeping us securely in his hand. How do we know this? Because his word declares that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know this because His Word declares that those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. How do we know that God will do all these things? because he's already given us his Son. So how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, Paul asks. The angel escorting the Apostle John through the visions of heaven says to him, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And the description that follows is magnificent in its beauty and glory as the gemstones that are mentioned are dazzling in their brilliance. Charles Spurgeon comments about this moment and he says, You know that the stones of which this holy city is built are living stones. You and I, if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, shall be there living stones prepared by divine grace to have a name and a place in this living city. But what changes will have to be brought in us before we are fit to be put among these precious jewels? This is the glory that awaits all those who respond in faith to the call of Christ. It is the glory that awaits all those who respond to the invitation of the Spirit and the Bride who say, Come. And what we find in this glorious end of the story is that God has indeed made all things new. The tree of life, once forbidden to us because of our sin, reappears in the new Jerusalem, bountiful and beautiful, available to the nations. And running through the middle of the city, Flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb is the river of the water of life as well as an invitation to any who are thirsty to come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This is the invitation that is made to all with ears to hear. Will you come? Let me invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment that we might pray.